Welcome to Real Indigenous. Today we have Ramona Emerson. She's a filmmaker and writer. Her films include Opal, The Last Trek, A Return Home, and The Mirrors of Shiprock. Her debut novel, Shudder, was long-listed for the National Book Award, and Ramona is Navajo. Ramona, welcome. Please feel free to introduce yourself. I'll, I'll be official. Um, Ramona Emerson and Chef, Atlashi in Chile, Ana Kaidine Bashishi, Kitini Bashiche, Nakaidine Bashinole. Those are my clans. And I am originally from Tohachi, New Mexico, um, but I have, I grew up kind of in Santa Fe and Albuquerque, and I've lived in Albuquerque for quite some time. Um, and I have a production company here. Um, that I run with my husband Kelly, and it's called Real Indian Pictures. Uh, we do mostly documentary films. At least we will be um, working in documentary films for a little bit longer. We've got um, uh, three documentaries and a docu series um, on the uh, stove right now. So that's where I'm at right now. I'm writing the second book, so the um, sequel to Shetta right now. So that's what I'm doing. And it's really good to see all of you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, yeah, we'll let the other folks uh, who are on today also introduce themselves. Pagalayevsi, Uvanga Angela starts in Upiatin. And I read your book and I loved it. So just going to throw that out there. Maruweka, I'm Sonari Sipakani. I am uh, enrolled in Comanche and I've got some Navajo in me somewhere. Just a little bit. We're searching for it. <laughs> um, that's awesome. I'm Monica Brain and um, Assiniboine and Lakota. And um, so, okay, Ramona, I have known about this book for quite some time that you've been working on it, but I've, I've heard that it took a long time to write this book and to actually get it published. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yes, you're absolutely right. It took forever. I think part of the reason why it took so long though was because um, I got my MFA and I was making the marriage of Shiprock at the same time. So it was a little crazy. Plus, you know, I'm a mom and I've got a million things of, you know, lots of plates spinning. The, the, the book itself probably started in 2012. I had a, a writing workshop up in northern New Mexico. Uh, with Joan Tewksbury, and I started writing little short stories about my grandma and uh, growing up on the res. And I asked her to write me a letter of recommendation at the end of our workshop, and she asked me what I was going to study for my MFA. And I told her screenwriting because that's what I thought I was going to do. It just seemed natural to me since I'd been working in film for as long as I'd had. Well, she told me no. She wouldn't write me a letter of recommendation. <laughs> she said, no, and you cannot go into screenwriting. If you go into fiction and you keep writing what you've been writing in workshop, I will write you a letter of recommendation. But I don't think you should go to get your MFA in screenwriting. So I was kind of perplexed by that. I had no inclination to write a novel or to be a writer or to write fiction. It just never was on my radar at all. But I was kind of enjoying myself at workshop and I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll see how this works out. And I applied under the fiction category and I got in with my short stories I was writing in workshop. I kind of had an idea I might write a, a book about a Navajo forensic photographer. It kind of morphed into all of this other stuff pretty quickly. 
Kelly and I attended an APD civilian CSI class for 16 weeks, right as I was starting my MFA program. And we were shown, over the 16 weeks, we basically got a crash course in forensics. And uh, we learned everything from blood spatter, how to you know do ballistics, um, how to pull fingerprints off of things, everything you could imagine. The first case that we saw in class was the case of this woman who jumped over um, a railing at the I-40 overpass during a snowstorm and committed suicide. And basically, I remember the officer telling me there were pieces of her that we would never find. And because people were taking her, her body, and they didn't even know because it was snowing so bad and it's like the freeway, you know, you just don't, what did, what did I hit? You know, nobody stopped until somebody stopped. And they finally realized what was going on. So we saw the photographs from that, and we saw all these other things. And I was taking over all the stuff I was learning at this CSI class. Plus, I worked in forensics for 16 years here in Albuquerque. Um, not for APD, but just for a private firm. And so I just kind of, it all just kind of had a, a eureka moment when I was <laughs> in my first semester of my MFA. And um, I was trying to figure out how to put all these stories I had together, the, the back story with me and my grandmother and this other story with the forensic photographer and they started to come together and then there was something else that needed to happen and I realized that what's the worst thing that could happen to a Navajo? And it's like, what's the worst thing? Um, and I thought, oh, well, if somebody could see ghosts and talk to dead people as an Navajo person, that would probably be like the worst thing ever. Like everybody would be freaked out. Because death is such a taboo, right? For us, it's like something you don't talk about. You don't, you don't look at a dead body. You don't, you don't say, you know, after they pass, you don't say their name. There's like, there's all these protocols around death and what you do and you don't do. So, just the work I had been doing for 16 years of stuff you don't do. You know, you don't look at that stuff. All of that came together and it just started to mesh right away. And I had um, Eden Robinson was my mentor, like my first mentor there. I don't know if any of you have read any of Eden Robinson's work. She wrote Monkey Beach, which is one of my favorite books, and um, she wrote this like this Raven series that was going to happen up in Canada. And beautiful book. So she kind of inspired me, and she was so supportive of me that first year because I had never written a novel. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never written fiction before, and she kind of like just cuddled me through it and was like, "You've got the story. One of this is just you just need the formatting. You know, you just need this to get it into this format." And I hadn't. I hadn't been lectured about my grammar, you know, since college, so it had been a while. <laughs> it had been a while from BFA or BA to MFA, so um, it took me a sec. I got a, a bunch of drafts, like, that were just pure red, you know, because I'm terrible. Um, so, you know, that's how it started, but it took <laughs> it took a long time to, I mean, I got an agent right out of there and went to writing workshops and... Um, all this stuff, and I got 28 rejection letters from like all the big publishing houses. Nobody liked my book. Everybody thought it was too complicated. They didn't know if it was a horror book or a crime, a crime procedural or a coming of age story. Like they wanted me to write two different books. Like everybody had a complaint. Nobody liked the end. It was like everybody hated something about it. So, and then I got dumped by my agent because <laughs> she couldn't figure out what to do with it. Nobody wanted it. And she felt, kind of felt like she didn't know what to do with it either. So she kind of let me go. And once she did, I went back to an editor who had actually been, they'd actually told her not to bid on my book because she couldn't afford it. For my first, my first agent was like, oh, you, 
you know, your press is too small, you know, and anyway, she kind of got thrown out of the bidding process pretty early. So when I got done by my agent, I went back to her and I asked her if she was still interested because she was very interested. She was the only one that was interested, you know, everybody else just said no. Um, so I went back to her and within six months I'd signed with Soho and, and, and Juliet and I were doing edits. But in between that time when I got out of my MFA program and I got all the, all that agent drama and all of the rejection letters and I broke my arm, there was all kinds of craziness that happened in that, in that little window of like four or five years. And it was heartbreaking. I gave, I gave up on the book several times, even once I sold it to Soho. Um, an editor came back and told me, Ramona, that end has got to go. <laughs> you got to take those last 80 to 60 pages of your novel and just kind of put it somewhere else and start over. And I kept trying to kill Rita at the end of the book on several different iterations because I thought it was just going to be one book. You know, Rita dies. It's over. But everybody just kind of convinced me to keep going. And I kept going. And, and eventually, like I say, so he'll pick it up and... They've been really good to me. It's been nice to have a, a, a small press, but regardless of the fact that it's a small press, they've done their best to get Shutter out there, and they've worked really hard to um, to get me out there because nobody knows who I am. Um, but I think because of all their hard work, Shutter has done well, you know, and and they've been 100% behind me, and so it's been good. It's it's been eye opening because quite frankly, I never thought anyone was even going to read the book. <laughs> I was like, well. We'll throw it out there. I think it was just like that 25 years of like you make films and maybe a handful of people see them and, you know, like it never really goes anywhere and I'm already on to my next film or doing something else. Um, and I just got used to that. So the fact that people were paying attention to Shudder and what I was doing was shocking to me. I, I don't think I've ever read this before. So it's kind of weird and it's still weird. It's still kind of strange. But I'm very thankful. I'm thankful that people are enjoying the book. And I'm really thankful that I've been able to go home to the res. I we sold at the um, the flea market. <laughs> we did a, which is like the ultimate. Like if you can do that, man, you can do it, right? And I was nervous about that. I was like, oh my god, everybody's gonna freak out because I'm like, I wrote this death book, and I'm over there at the flea market, right? But Dr. Denetdale went with me, and she was like, I'll go with you, and it'll be fine, and. So Dr. Jennifer Dinettdale is like one of my my mentors, and uh, she was like, "Don't worry, the novels aren't gonna freak out. You know, they all watch The Walking Dead. You know, they don't worry, it's gonna be fine." And when we got there, she was like a carnival barker. She was like, "Danae Arthur over here selling her book. It's scary, and there's ghosts and spooky stuff. If you know you want to read it, she was like, she was so hilarious." And before you know it, all these novels were coming by, and a lot of people from my own community of Tohatchi came by and bought the book. It was a relief because I thought, oh my God, I mean. And then when I had a reading in Windorock at the library, another freak out moment for me, I thought for sure somebody was going to show up and confront me about it or say something, or Medicine Man and his switch would be there waiting for me. But nobody did, and I, I like right away. Miss Navajo Nation came and sat right in front of me, which freaked me out. Like immediately, I was like, "Oh no, my God, it's like too much pressure." But I did the reading. We had a great discussion. I think everybody was just glad to see themselves on the page, and glad to see that it was somebody from their own community writing it. You know, it wasn't 
Tony Hillerman or whoever, like all these crazy people that write Navajo witchcraft crap um, and, and put it out there and talk about us and they don't know who we are. They have no idea. They're just, they're researching and it's sort of like an anthropological project that they're making millions of dollars off their novels with and it's just kind of irritating. So to donate people too, you know, so I think it's just good for them to see themselves on the page and it's a truthful portrayal and that they can relate to the characters and that they know this is how we talk out there on the res and this is how the world is and, this is, and they understand it and we can relate to each other and it's true. So that for me has been great. And so it was worth the 10 years of craziness that um, that Shudder went through to get to that point. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it was 10 years for a reason. And my, my, my editor always tells me that. She was like, it just happened to time out, like right after COVID. And it all worked out. And if it would have been two years earlier or if I would have made a bid on it when your agent told me not to or whatever, she goes, it wouldn't have been the right time. It was just the, meant to be that amount of time and it came out at the right time and it was just perfect and they did it for a reason so I believe her I think she's right it happened for a reason <laughs> it just seemed at the time like oh another dreaded career choice well I, I it only took me like two days to read it I I zipped right through it I it's totally my kind my favorite kind of book because it is like a police procedural but it still has that supernatural element to it that I really, really like. I'm curious, you know, how do you come up with who done it and how do you get there and get your protagonist to figuring out who who done it? Because, you know, I was just like, oh no, it's gotta be so oh no, it's not. Oh well like pretty early, you know, just because I mean I'm also doing this documentary about border town pilots. Right? And, and when, when I was looking at Albuquerque, it was always the cops that were bad. Like there was a lot of stuff and, you know, they've got, you know, they've got civil cases against them. There's issues within APD and they're always shooting people. We all know about APD. Like pretty early on, I was like, it's going to be a cop. <laughs> because, you know, because that's, if there's something crooked going on, she's going to have to get to the bottom of it. And it's going to be something that could endanger her. Who do something like that? The police, and especially if she works for them, you know, it's like there's no escape, right? That's like the worst thing. And so, of course, I always want Rita to go through the worst thing. <laughs> so, you know, that was like right away, like early on in the process, I started to set him up right away. Like the cops were already ugly or they were already, it was already something that she didn't trust. Like she didn't trust them like from the get-go. So it was pretty easy for me to know, like, okay, I just have to figure out how I'm going to tell the story to give the backstory as to how this cop got the way he is. And um, I think it's a, I think it's a probably a narrative that probably exists in some police officers' lives. Really, I mean, I think they have some real issues. And, and this is one of them. So it was pretty easy to play off of that. I just had to figure out how to play everyone else into it. Um, but I knew that would be... Um, the ultimate danger for her, especially as a Dene woman in Albuquerque. Yeah, that whole party scene was—I was so tense. When, when the flash, yeah, when the when the flash goes off and and the and it and it breaks, I'm like, no, oh my gosh, it's happening. <laughs> they know. It's like that's all it takes, right? That's all it takes. It was pretty easy to work the cops in, um, and I've had 
I've had a few, um, you know, experiences working for the police department with the forensic stuff I did. And um, I remember a few police officers who were kind of rude and nasty to me when I was working for them. And they looked sp like suspiciously like the characters in my books. Um, <laughs> I mean, and, but you know, you don't have to give them their names or anything, but, but I know in my mind, I have these memories of them being rude when I was trying to work for them. And I was like, oh, I think, you know, I think I'll put that guy in there. I remember what he looked like and how horrible he was. Let's make my character like that guy. So, you know, um, they say if you want people to write fondly of you, you should behave. This is one of those cases. <laughs> yeah, easy, easy target. <laughs> Related to this, a, a, the deal of making a procedural and then also dealing with kind of like paranormal phenomena, those are basically genre work, right? Thinking about how those things uh, are structured. And um, I would imagine you have some elements that seem to suggest like your instincts toward documentary, like recall of like detail. And um, there's clear like uh, procedure we see you follow uh, in the way that you describe what's happening, like what what she's doing, what the cops are doing. But I'm curious if there's a, any anything that you had to do to transition from working in like documentary form versus like fiction and then like genre, if there were any specific challenges to that. That's a big shift, really. It is. It's a very big shift. And I think that's why it was so hard at first to figure out how fiction works. Doing those little short stories helped a little bit, but it was, <laughs> I think it, it kind of benefited, I think it kind of benefited me in a way, the fact that I was telling visual stories for 25 years, because once once I started trans or transitioning into fiction, I felt like my fiction is very visual um, and, and very descriptive. And so I think that's something that's a little bit different that people appreciate about the book. I, I feel like when you're making documentaries, you want people to be able to like viscerally experience it. So, because I like to be verite and I don't like to like participate in, in my documentaries or interrupt or try to try to um, navigate the narrative and make people move or like, can we stop and do that again? And like that, I don't do that. Right? If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't work out the way I want, well, that's just how documentary works. Um, so I just kind of like that natural way of letting stories unfold. So when you move into something like fiction or a genre, I've kind of thought about it the same way. Um, I wanted people to experience the story on a very visceral level. So I just thought of, well, how would I tell this story with a camera? Try to describe it to people in a very first-person narrative. And that's kind of how the fiction unfolded. I never wrote the book at all in second-person or third-person. It was always going to be in first-person. I think that kind of is like... Um, that's kind of an offshoot of, of doing documentary and being kind of telling first person stories. So that part of the storytelling was very easy for me. I think I was able to make that transition. As far as the genre goes, I've never written anything that has anything to do with mystery. I don't know any of the tricks. Um, I've never been much of a mystery reader. So like I read a few Nancy Drew books like back in third grade, right? But I don't really do mystery. I don't read that stuff. So I don't know the tricks. I don't know all the the setups and the way you do a whodunit or a crime thing. And I think that was kind of cool about the book was that I don't follow any of the tropes or do any of the tricks because I don't know them. 
And so I was just kind of telling the story the way it was, the way it unfolded, um, as if I was there documenting the the, the events as they were happening. And I think it, I think that kind of storytelling translated well. It, that's also what confused a lot of people too, because it goes back and forth, right? It goes back and forth with this crime and all of this forensic stuff, and then it goes back to her childhood, and you see her growing up, and you you want to do something. I wanted to make sure we understood her backstory, because you would never understand why it was such a hard thing for her to do unless you heard her whole backstory and how it started. Otherwise, you'd never get any of the cultural stuff. Um, you'd never get any of the um, the moral implications of what she's doing for herself and for her her grandmother and for all these other people that she's affecting with her work. So it was very important to go back and forth. That is something that most mystery novels don't do, which is why all the people were like, this is not a book that we understand. (laughs) And I get that, but sometimes you just got to do something new because I, I just, I'm not, I don't know, I guess I'm just not into board. I love that part. I was, I was just looking over some reviews on Goodreads before this. And like, that was one of the complaints was that it went back and forth. It was two stories in one. And I was like, that's so stupid. That's a dumb complaint. The other thing that I thought was hilarious was somebody's main complaint was that you use the word Adobe too much. (laughs) That's hilarious. That's why I don't read good reviews. Yeah. I wanted to read them. I wanted to see how racist people were going to be. You know, like the people didn't understand like the cultural part of the book and how revolutionary this novel is when you think about, you know, the crap that Tony Hillerman has like put out and been able to profit off of and, and then, you know, here we finally have it. We finally have a Navajo mystery. I just, I don't know. I thought I thought people, I was pretty proud of the reviews that 99% of them were great. And the, the one thing that said anything about culture was you're not going to learn very much about the Navajo from this book. And she spelled Navajo with an H. So. At least she didn't put an E on the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. There, I feel like there's like one moment where I feel like it really gets to like what I feel is like a real crux of a Navajo struggling with belief. I'm going to quote: "As a Navajo, you work. The work you must do must be distressing to you. I don't believe in all that." She says. I answered, "It's superstition." Do you believe in God? She asked. No, I said that is also superstition. Th- that is really interesting to me because it's like struggling about like two different kind of belief systems and they both have these own, their own taboos and you know, it's not just walking in two worlds here. It's like walking among m- many different sort of like, where do I sit in relation to what I've been taught? Well, what is the truth about that? And it feels like she's really figuring that out. Where does she sit in relation to just photographing number one, you know, uh, 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 talking about the deceased, number two, interacting with them, and 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 then in relation to people who probably are, you know, elders or uh, matrilineal matriarchs, um, suggesting one way, and then just this idea of of God and Christianity. I feel like that 
also like these are things that kind of come up in a variety of different nuanced ways. You stitch it in really well, and like uh, uh, the the crux of this conflict really is something that is so distinctly Navajo. I mean, uh, other tribes can probably identify with this, but it just seems like those are those are things that I think are revelatory. Say a lot about what Navajos are thinking and just sort of like this um, daily way in which it occurs. It's like every scene has those issues in it. So that's interesting that like uh, somebody has this comment that you don't learn anything about the, the Navajos because it feels like that's clearly something I was like, you know, it's just amazing how you distilled it down there. Really amazing. Well, I think, I think all the religious stuff and like the Navajo beliefs and all of that kind of go out the window because like they tell her these things about the ghost or they tell her this stuff about the dead and she already knows it not to always be true. Like it's not always the same. Like nobody can predict how one spirit's going to act. And some of them are just there and she's able to just like say something to them and they leave. And But some of them won't go away. They're just like people, you know, like you never know the temperament of a spirit or a ghost or whatever, just as you don't know the temperament of the living people. And I think there's also a statement in there about how it's not the dead people that you need to worry about. It's the people who are still alive because <laughs> they're the ones that can hurt you. They're the ones that want to hurt you. <laughs> so there's this whole idea about spirituality and what you believe and what you don't versus what her reality is and what she sees every day. And it's, it's, of course, a juxtaposition, but I think it's something that really is a, like a metaphor for, I think, how indigenous people, especially in this region, um, have this like strange dichotomy about what they believe. And um, like even the Pueblos, like they, they have their traditional beliefs and they still do like Kiva ceremonies and they have this whole idea. Same with the Diné, it's like the same thing. They still have these traditional practices, but then they still go to church on Sunday. Right, yes, right. Jesus and they still, you know, like, the sign across, they still have these strange other traditions that are sometimes have melded together. Like they have saint days, right? There's saint days that they celebrate with their feasts. So it's like, wow, it's like we have been forced to kind of like just absorb it all and, and celebrate it all and, or, or believe in it all. I think it's something that's like kind of, I guess, like you say, in tribal communities, it's kind of universal. I think in New Mexico, the Diné and the Pueblo, I think they really have more traditional beliefs that they still practice, maybe even more so than some other tribes. But but I still think that's really a good part of the discussion for her and, and talking about how all of that craziness exists. And for Rita, kind of doesn't, because she just doesn't believe any of it, because she can't. She just sees the reality of it all, all the time. So that's no fun, I guess, in a way. Um, she doesn't believe in anything. And that little conversation with her in the street kind of mm-hmm. had to put that, I wanted to put that in there because people think she's crazy. And I think including the street kind of doesn't know what to think. And, mm-hmm. But through that conversation, I think you see that she's very lucid and she knows exactly what's going on. She's not crazy at all. So it's something I think the psychologist needed to see. Yeah, so that was my way of doing it. Yeah. And I, I feel like you hit on a second thing. I'm like monopolizing it, but I, the, the, this, this question that we have about how does how do medical professionals handle our own integration of spirituality into our health you know it's not like separate where it's like you know 
maybe some people believe that church is, you know, one way that you solve problems and then you deal with your body and your mind a different way if you're not indigenous, perhaps. But the, the, just the thinking that it's like, you know, scribbling down that she's just like crazy and having hallucinations, you know, clearly is not figuring out how do I handle like somebody who has this, this, this ability for, you know, it's really valid for this particular individual and this community. And I feel like that's a real world issue that I feel like the medical community just on the level of like mental health has not figured out how to handle. And that scene is just so, uh, it, it just so hits that particular moment really well and those issues really well. And it's, you know, just stitched into, you know, all these other outsiders that are having the same problem in their own way. But I, I feel like I don't see that particular depiction all that often. And it just, it was nice to see that. And we, yeah, the the reader already knows. I mean, it's completely valid. We know that it's she's not hallucinating. It's not false. There's got to be another way to handle this. And and for her, it's very critical if she's going to lose her job, you know, or not. Like that's also those things happen in real life. Uh, there's nothing to do with genre really at that point. I was like, that that's really that is hit home. I was like, that's real. Yeah, and a lot of it is real. It's very. I felt I felt like very little of it is kind of crime. It's like, it's it's there. It's like defrosting, you know, but the big cake, the, the big chunk of the cake is mostly all of this world building and talking about critical issues in her world. And um, that crime stuff is just kind of defrosting. <laughs> but it was along. good. I liked it. It was the kind <laughs> of like... Um, it reminded me of when I was a kid and there was like a really good book and I was under the covers with the flashlight desperate to finish it, you know, like I just, I, I finished it just about as fast as Angela did too. And I just couldn't put it down. I think I even read some of it at work. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Listen, I downloaded the audiobook, And so when I couldn't read it, I was like listening to it. So. Ah, that's very, that's very sly. Who, who read, did you read it? <laughs> no. Um, they asked me if I wanted to, and I was like, Ugh. Yeah, I was wondering about that process, because we've had another guest on who actually does audiobooks as one of her jobs. Mm -hmm. And so, but we, we didn't get to hear, like, from the author's point of view, how that selection goes about, comes about. Well, I've when it was time for that decision to be made, they sent me several different samples of different um, uh, different readers. And I listened to a few. I just like Charlie's voice um, because, I don't know, she has a very human voice, which is something I couldn't say for most of the other things I was listening to. It just kind of seemed very Siri <laughs> in some cases, or um, it just seemed so sterile, some of the, the ways that people were reading books. It just seems so sterile or strange to me. But when I listen to Charlie, she kind of has this interesting cadence that she has, and she's very methodical and about the way she reads. And, and I just kind of liked her voice. I just felt like she was the most human person I listened to. So I picked her right away. There were That was one of the only things <laughs> that, that all the, the, the NACO kind of complained a little bit about was her pronunciation of some of the Navajo words that were in there. Of course, they were like, hmm. Um, how come you didn't get a Navajo reader to do that or whatever? Um, I, she tried her best. 
I will give that, I will say that about Charlie. We sent her the pronunciations. I recorded some of the pronunciations for her and sent them to her. But, you know, if you don't have Danae tongue, it's it's just hard to get some of those ah and sit and ah out. And um, if, you know, if your tongue hasn't been trained to do that. Um, so, I, I mean, I understand that she, I'm sure she had some difficulty with some of those words. And, I, I didn't put a lot of Dene in there. I didn't put a lot of I didn't put a lot of the, the language in there. You know, because a lot of the the part of the story is about how she really doesn't know how to speak her language. So there's not a lot of it in there. I kind of kept it that way. Um, and also the storyline. I mean, I I felt like so many native stories have us in our in our native um, um, environment, <laughs> right? Like we are on the reservation, or um, you know, we're playing basketball <laughs> or we're at the casino or, you know, it's like they have these little, yeah, at the bar. So like, there's like these little habitats, right? <laughs> or environments. That we have. <laughs> and I just was like, but you know, like 80% of us live in the city <clears throat> and we work with people who are not from our community, who don't speak our language or know anything about us or care. What is that like? Like, when are we going to see that story? I've always said that. Like, when are we going to see that story? And so this is my chance to say, yeah, this is that story. Like, this is her. This is what life is like for a, a Diné person who doesn't live in their community, that's outside the four sacred mountains, right, that <laughs> has this life that is absolutely not Navajo. And what is that like for her? And all those people that she works with are not Navajo, you know? So it's kind of... It was kind of important to put that in there for me because I really wanted people to see the reality of how we live, you know, and it's it's not always in our habitat. <laughs> that, yeah, that's something that I really appreciated her going to the club and, you know, being in the city and just yeah. living the life like the rest of us do. Yeah, I really like that kind of club scene, like when she gets super wasted and then like hooks up with that dude. And then her grandma shows up because that's what happens. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> medicine the medicine man. Show up. The medicine man and grandma show up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, like you know, Navajo families are. They can ask any Navajo that lives in town that they like. When does your mom? You know, what is it like when your mom and your grandma or whoever comes to visit? Like, they don't call and tell you. They never do. They, they never do. <laughs> yeah, with like 12 cousins and they're like knocking on your door and like, oh my God, <laughs> the whole fam is here. And I got to go for yeah. 10 minutes. Oh no, <laughs> come on in. Um, but that's just how it is. Like that, I liked, I really enjoyed writing that. And I actually, I credit my old agent who um, couldn't, didn't know what to do with me because I didn't have any kind of hooking up for Rita at all in the early drafts of the book. And she was like, you need to let Rita get them. Like, poor thing. Like, poor thing. <laughs> and because like, I never, I never even thought about that at all. You know, I was like, uh, you know, Rita was like one track mind, you know, do, do, do. Um, but when she told me that, I wrote all those, that chapter and all of that stuff. And it was fun. It was funny because, I mean, I just kind of figured, man, Let's just have some fun with it for a little bit and let Rita have a life, poor thing, you know, because yeah. she never really had it. So it gave her a little chance to do that. And I credit her for telling me that. 
because I would have never. <laughs> Poor Rita. Um, <laughs> yeah. It is interesting that she's like less concerned about numbers at that point. I was like, oh, she's like kind of like loosening up. She's like, like not counting things as much. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. Well, plus she got suspended, so that's no fun. She can't count. She can't count when she can't take pictures. So, mm, interesting. That was one of the things I kind of went through with her. I wanted her to be kind of one of those counters, like she counts everything. And uh, some early drafts had her counting way more things, and it was starting to get a little bit crazy. So I had to cut back on it a little bit. So um, she was starting to count a little bit too much. <laughs> yeah. But I thought it was an interesting yeah. kind of habit that she had, at least as a first. It feels like it's still there kind of at the beginning. I felt like there's a lot of... I was very aware yeah. of, like, the numbers, yeah. Yeah, yeah and at the party, and, the photos uh, of the party. That comes up when she's right. transferring yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a habit. I was curious about the camera openings for each chapter and how you came up with that. When I was doing some um, some drafting earlier, I had some people, like from like the ones from Goodreads who couldn't figure out what was going on and it was going back and forth and timeline was crazy. So when you type those camera models into Google, it'll tell you what year they came out. And that's the year that the setting of the chapter is in. And so there's a couple of chapters that don't have camera names and that's because there's like like paper and boxes chapter four. That's because her grandpa our grandma shows her how to make a camera out of a, a box. And then there's a chapter with the ghost her, and it's just her name. There's no camera in that chapter, so it was just her name. Um, and then later on, there's a reference to a Plavo Machina camera with the big leather bellows that her grandma belonged to her grandmother. And it doesn't really relate to that particular year, but it tells you what year her grandmother was taking photographs at the boarding school. And so it's kind of a gauge for time. And it's accurate. Believe me, my copy editors, there were a couple of times I tried to slip because I was getting laser, tried to slip some camera models in there, and the copy editors came back. We're like, nope, that camera didn't come. It came out in 2010. It's not going to work here. You got to find a camera from 1998 or <laughs> 2002 or whatever year I was on. They were very methodical about that, and, and also with the time with the SD cards, there were a few of those were like, nope, in that year, SD cards would have never held that amount of information. You have to make sure she changes cards in this scene somewhere because the card won't store that many. I mean, they were on point about every single detail of the camera models and all the equipment she was using. Um, they were methodical, so it's all it's all very accurate. But that's kind of why I did that was to kind of give people a little bit of a a way to gauge what year it is. So when you start looking through it, you'll see years and, and when it starts and when it well ends. i was i was also very impressed that she found somebody to develop the photos because here in oklahoma you have to send them off to dallas nowadays to get film developed unless you're doing it yourself wow. yeah see that's because it's the year right because it's probably at that point it's like early 80s for her so yeah you go into a photoshop and there were photoshops back then right. like the Fox photo booth right where you drop the and then you and, and when she gets her photos and they have that waxy envelope that she used to open up, um, like all that stuff doesn't exist anymore. So it's kind of like too, like a little homage to all the old media because it ends. If you look at the end chapters right before it's the last few chapters when she's figuring out the last bit of the crime, it's the apertures, it's the lens is slowly opening. 
But up to that point, we're getting backstory about Rita. And so that's why the camera models work. But the last one is iPhone, right? It's like one of the last ones. So the first iPhone came out in 2005. So you can gauge that, okay, that's the year it is when she's finally solving the crime. The rest of the book, we're, at, we're in current times, it's 2005. So it's kind of a flashback, I think, before it's like, it's like a homage to photography before the digital, before digital kind of took over. Yeah, it was, um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 that was it. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, I really appreciated the kind of description of the physicality. Like there's the moment where you kind of describe like the turning and feeling the, the, the gear inside shifting. And I could sense the weight Right. And there's something really amazing about sensing the physicality. You don't get that with like even a DSLR. Um, you definitely don't no. get that with a phone. And there's something really magical about that physical memory. And all of that has some sort of similarity to what you're describing when we see or we get a sense of what's in front of the camera as well. It's just as physical and just as maybe tangible. And then it becomes a little bit different as we go forward, but um, I thought those were really amazing kind of descriptions of it. There's great description yeah. of physics. Uh, when, yeah. Yeah, I think something that's something that younger readers may not get, you know, that whole physicality of the camera, like winding the film back up in the roll and pulling the plug out and pulling that thing out. I mean, they don't, you don't do that anymore. None of that. Or the Polaroid. Well, now they kind of have like, like uh, retro yeah, Polaroid right. that they're trying to do. Back in the day, you know, the big Polaroid cameras with the straps and all that stuff. And yeah, it's completely. It was a completely different time and a really cool time, I think, because when you have a roll of twenty-four and it's going to cost you five to ten dollars to develop, you are very choosy yeah. and selective about what you take pictures of. And it's important because nowadays you can. You know, you take 10 pictures of your thigh with your phone before you get in situation. Nobody cares. But back in the day, it was like, yeah, there was some real monetary issues attached to your camera. And, and, and you had to really be, you know, thoughtful about what you're taking pictures of. There's no time to waste film, you know. Same with radio, you know. You... <laughs> You didn't, you couldn't have a podcast that was three hours long because um, right. <laughs> it cost too much money. <laughs> I wanted to say, though, um, that scene where the grandma shows her how to um, make the pinhole camera, I just started crying when I was reading it. And I have, I don't know why, I have no idea why, but it was like, one of my favorite parts of the book. I was, it really touched me. Well, I love that chapter. It's one of my favorite ones. And when I have to do readings, I usually will pick that chapter. Yeah, because I really think that it tells a really pure and clean story about the two of them and their relationship and how close they are to each other. And like, yeah, that whole, that whole scene of her getting that picture back of her grandfather and her grandma crying and her feeling bad about her and, all of it. It's just, and that one gets to me too because I remember my own grandma and like, because I'm telling that story and that's what it was like. And it makes me miss my grandma when I read that chapter, you know, because 
there's a lot of her in it. There's a lot of her in it. So that's a very special chapter. I'm glad you like that one. <laughs> that's one of my faves. Well, we wanted to know more about, since this is going to be a trilogy, the next book, what can you share about it? You know, wait, 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 just three. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, can how we... many Mormons are there? Come on. You got to. Yeah. First of all, we vote for more than three. Yeah. You never know. There's somebody might talk me into it. Um, but when I, when I was negotiating this first book, um, they asked me if I was going to write a sequel. I felt like it could, I mean, after many, many drafts of trying to kill Rita, I realized that I just was never going to do it. And that um, I needed to, you know, figure out if how long I thought I could do it. And I just didn't know if I wanted to write Rita forever. And my my new, my new agent is kind of like asking me if I can write anything that doesn't have dead bodies and blood and stuff in it. And I'm like, yeah, I could write that. And she's like, please, would you? <laughs> Just like maybe one that's just a normal fiction, please. So I mean, I'm and I and I kind of do have one in the back of my brain that I think would be interesting to write. So I just didn't know if I wanted to be following Rita forever, um, or having to write Rita for the rest of my life. And so I just said three. I think is probably my limit, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Book number two. Um, I am probably let's see, about a third of the way in of the book but I already know what's going to happen I mean in my brain I have the the storyline kind of the outline of the book all mapped out so I know what's going to happen but the actual physical writing of it is um tough man and and what do you do when your first book does so well it's like so much pressure to to make sure that the second book is so good or at least as good as the first book was and how do you keep that tension and pressure and and how do you pe- keep people engaged with Rita's life and it's a lot to it's a lot to think about and a lot to um, process when you're actually writing the story. So it's a huge part of my what's going on in my brain as I'm writing book number two. Is like you better make this freaking good, Ramona. Like it it's got to be better. Like I'll write a chapter and I'm like I don't know. So I'm kind of hemming and hawing about certain things. But I do know that the second book is called Exposure. That title came pretty early in the process. I wanted to keep with that whole like double entendre camera motif that's kind of going on. Um, because we've already heard Rita's whole backstory and how that whole, um, her whole life has unfolded. I can't really go back to that in the second book. Like it's been resolved. We've done that already. And so I had to kind of think of a narrative. How do I pull this narrative together in the same way that I kind of pulled Shutter together to keep people in um, you know, readers engaged, keep wanting to turn to the next chapter, make sure that they didn't put the book down. You know, I don't want you guys to get bored. I want you guys to turn pages just like you turned it on the first one. So it's been difficult. I will say that um, the second book is about a serial killer. <laughs> and I have been doing extensive serial killer research, uh, reading like the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers and all these horrible books about, you know, John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer and, you know, BTK and all these interesting folks. And of course, watching all the horrible Netflix documentaries about everybody and just kind of learning about how serial killers think and what would a serial killer act like in a indigenous environment and what is their drive and who are they and where did they come from and why are they doing this and that's how the story's building it's like we're we're learning about this guy but at the same time Rita's still working she's still doing her work and 
having to come to terms with the fact that her grandma's getting too old to live alone. How much longer is she going to work for APD? Because now she's a, everyone thinks she's a snitch, right? Because of what she had to deal with with Garcia and everything that went down. Like, how do all of this play into the second book? So, and I've been doing a ton of research, not only about serial killers, but about the Catholic Church, about the behavior of birds, about farming tools. I have to throw this out there. I don't know if you've heard of the Oklahoma City Butcher. It's it's a serial killer that was he, practicing in Oklahoma City and killing indigenous women. Yeah. Ooh. And it is what year unsolved was it? to this day. It's when they were yeah, it was, doing the urban renewal <laughs> along 10th Street for, uh, sunrise, do you remember it was the 70s, 80s? Uh, yeah, sure. look up Oklahoma City Butcher, Butcher or OKC Butcher and read about that because it's figured into some stuff I've been writing, just the the way they've found the different body parts and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. And how heartbreaking it is that mm-hmm. they've never really pursued the investigation. Where, yeah, where's the Netflix series on that? Unresolved. Yeah. It's just kind of yeah, yeah. Nineteen. Oh, it's just saying nineteen seventy six um, to like seventy nine. And I had never heard of it until I was listening to a different podcast who was traveling through Oklahoma City and brought it up. And then I started reading about it and finding out that they were these indigenous women sex workers. Then you know the whole case just kind of flowed off the radar. Oh, uh, seventy nine to ninety two. Oh wow, that's a long period of time. Yeah. So they stretched it out. It was. It probably wasn't all the time. And like, there were probably years between. Could have been, or they got really good at hiding the yeah. body parts. Yeah. yeah. Or they got in trouble. That's yeah. always the other thing. They're in jail. So there's, there's, like, there's periods of time not active. Yeah. Or that like teaching thing where they like pass on to some, or somebody mimics, you know? Yeah. There's, yeah. Like a, somebody who. Who does the same style of killing, but isn't necessarily the same person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. But I mean, but this guy, this guy's a little bit different because for him, it's like mercy killing. He's kind of like transporting them to heaven in his in his mind, sure. and then like putting them out of their misery, hmm. so he has no guilt about it. Oh, I can't wait! I know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's fun. It's it's been strange. My agent asked my husband, "How do you sleep at night?" Like, I mean, that is one one question I would like to ask. How do you protect yourself from getting too deep in that darkness Mm -hmm. and separating yourself from it? I think all those years of working forensics helped me, kind of, I guess, be able to. Just kind of, I mean, when I was th- first started working, things would really get to me. And I would carry some of these people for years um, in my memory. And I'd wonder, I'd have dreams about them. And um, and I would have to go home and go to the medicine man. There were a few times where I just freaked myself out that bad. But this was pretty early on when I was doing work. But by the time I was 16 years in, I was just going to work. And it was just photography and making sure the color and the measurements were correct. And making sure I was doing that evidentiary procedure correctly, so I wouldn't get yelled at by my boss or whatever, or ruin somebody's case, you know, 
that's what I was more concerned with than the fact that I was seeing body parts or, you know, um, a lot of the work I did with people were alive. I kept telling my grandma that. Well, these people are still alive, grandma. So, like, because when you work forensics, the way I was working forensics, you do a lot of stuff. It's not just crime scene stuff. It's everything from bank robberies to depositions. I mean, it's like everything. It's the full gamut. So I just had a lot of experience doing a lot of different things. It was just, for me, it was just something I used to sometimes have to go to the medicine man or even do like just go out and calm myself sometimes and just like step away. But when I was writing the book, I think sometimes like that chapter four was more emotionally wrenching for me than writing the, the first chapter, <laughs> you know, because those are the kind of emotions I was connected to more than thinking about the ugly side of it. I was more connected to her relationship with her grandmother and, and how all of that was affecting everything at home as, you know, as opposed to how all these people were navigating their 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 transition into death. And plus, I grew up watching, like, every horrible, scary movie ever made, you know, like, even, like, the really horrible, gory documentary stuff about horrible things, like Faces of Death, you know, like, all that... All that horrible stuff they did in the 80s that your grandma told you never to watch. Of course, we would go straight to the video store and get them and watch them, of course, right? So um, I have a lot of experience watching some pretty horrible stuff. So I think I'm kind of jaded. <laughs> and <laughs> so so nowadays, though, when I like this, all this serial killer stuff, I'll write a lot of that, like maybe two or three chapters. And I'm just like, whew, I need a break. And then Kelly's oh, going fishing <laughs> and getting out into out into the world where I have no access to my computer or my internet and I can't, you know, do a quick Google search about John Wayne Gacy or anything mm -hmm. like that. I'm in the mountain somewhere yeah. and I'm fishing and I forget about it. And he'll do that. He'll do that to me every now and then. He'll be like, all right, you're looking a little cross. Let's go do something else. Let's go play tennis or let's go work out. Let's go to the gym. Let's go fish. Let's go do something. And then also we have this other life where we do documentaries. Lucky for me, when I was writing Shudder, I was making the Mayors of Shiprock at the same time. So I was writing this really dark stuff, and then I'd have to stop that. And then I'd have to edit the Mayors of Shiprock for a couple of days. I think it kind of saved me a little bit, because Mayors of Shiprock is such a positive story. And these kids were so inspiring. And I was working really hard on that film. And it kind of, it kind of gave me a little reprieve from working on that all the time. And I would go and film with those kids and they'd make me laugh and I'd have a good time and then I would come home and write the book for a while. It kind of went back and forth. So yeah, I mean, I just have to give myself a break from it every now and then. And I, I and sometimes I have some very strange dreams after I've written a few chapters and I'll have a few nights of kind of fitful sleep when I won't sleep very well. So, you know, I guess it just comes with the territory of what you're letting, uh, what you're letting into your mind, kind of like Rita, you know, like, all the stuff you're thinking about when you go to bed at night. And for me, when I'm writing this kind of serial killer, it's not always the best stuff. <laughs> but, you know, I just kind of try to find the balance and I kind of feel it in, I kind of feel it in my gut where I'm like, okay, I need a break from this. Mm. Uh, I need to take a break from all this for just a sec. Um, and it also helps too that I'm going back and forth. So I'll write the, the, you know, this guy for a while and then I write Rita for a while. But unfortunately, the beginning of the second book doesn't give me much reprieve because I'll write about the serial killer book and then Rita's still working cases and they're really nasty. So I, it's like, so, so I didn't have any, I haven't had much reprieve on this.
second book, it goes from one nasty story into another nasty story, and it's been tough. But but now that I'm a third into it, I'm about to make a big plot and structural change within the book, and everything is moving around, and everything is going to change here in the next couple of chapters, and I'm going to move into a different mode. And so I think that'll help too. Yeah, that next mode is going to be a little bit a little bit of a breath before it gets into the gets intense again. <laughs> Gotta give yourself a break, I guess, from whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. Documentary, um, doing this border town violence documentary too is exhausting. Yeah, seeing all this police video, you know, all these horrible yeah. things happening to Indian people. Uh, you know, L'Oreal Sinajini's but that body cam video of L'Oreal getting murdered. All of this stuff is in the documentary, and it's hard to watch. It's hard to edit day after day. That one is. I think the physical imagery and then being there filming and doing a lot of this work is harder than writing the book. It's harder than doing Shudder. And that's why it's taking me so damn long to do this document series because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's emotional. So I'm glad the episodes are only a half hour. If I had four one-hour Doctor Series episodes, that probably feel insane because it's just too much story and mm-hmm. too much darkness. And to see it happening to your own people in Albuquerque and Gallup, you know, in Farmington, and yeah. it's just heartbreaking. <laughs> Yeah. Because yeah. that's real, man. That's real. Yeah. That's a fiction. What so do you have? Um, is it for PBS or? Um... Yeah, it's um, Vision Maker um, and ITVS have backed it. So mm. it's, it's a PBS thing. And it's hard to ride that line with them, too. It's pretty hard stuff to be talking about. And, you know, once it's done, we'll see how they feel about broadcast. You know, I hope they're still brave enough to broadcast it. Because mm-hmm. um, it's going to be. A pretty intense story for people to see but it's something they need to see because i'm just kind of horrified by the fact that when i talk about what goes on in these towns and i talk about that story people are like oh my god i never even knew it's like what really so it's like it's it's so important for them to see it and to to be slapped into the reality of what these towns bring to native people so yeah it's pretty pretty disturbing well we'll definitely look we'll look for it for sure even though it's disturbing, it's one of those uh, topics that I, I feel passionately about and would definitely check it out. Yeah. So, and I'll keep you posted on my editor's like, <laughs> oh, it's really going to take 10 years, like the first one. It's going to be like, maybe I'll get two years out of it, but I doubt it. They're wanting like yes. All right. So I we should let you get get to writing, but <laughs> we have some regular questions that we ask every guest. Angela, do you want to ask them? Well, first off, I want to ask: um, Are you on social media, and can people follow you so that they can keep up with all of your stories? I'm on Facebook. That's yeah, like in, in social media. Um, so, but under in Facebook, I think you can. I think yeah, Facebook is Ramona Emerson. But I have Instagram and Twitter are real Indian. That's my those are my names on Twitter and Instagram. I don't have I have TikTok, yeah. but I never ever get on it. If you get on there, real Indian on TikTok, there's <laughs> just a big gray circle and no content. I'm not a big TikToker. The Twitter account's really more about the book than it is about the filming. Um, and the Instagram is kind of. I love Instagram because I'm a big picture taker and I like just putting crazy stuff up on Instagram and um, that's fun for me. But um, but a lot of stuff is on Facebook. So. so if you want to find me, I'm there. And it's R-E-E-L, right? Just like us, real indigenous. 
So when it, our other question, our other question is, what advice would you give your younger self? It's not going to happen right away, so just keep doing it. That would be my advice because when I was younger and I was just out of film school, man, I thought, you know, I'm going to go out there and, you know, um, take over Hollywood. You know, I had this whole envision, I had this whole envision goal for myself, and I realized pretty quickly once I started working forensics that that was probably never going to happen. Oh. <laughs> it's like. I'm going to have a job forever. Oh my God. Mm. So, and I've, I've given up and quit like at least two or three times a year. Two days later, somebody calls me and says, are you going to come and shoot this thing or not? And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go back out there and keep going. And that's just how it works. Yeah. So that's what I would tell my younger self. It's probably a good thing too. I think um, there's a reason why it didn't happen until now. And it's, it's good. It, it, it taught me a lot. And finally, are you watching or reading or listening or consuming in some way something that's inspiring you? Um, well, you know, besides all the, the horrible um, documentaries I've been watching, those really, even though they're horrible, the Night Stalker and all that stuff, well, at the first 48, I watch that like daily as long as everyone's not home. Oh, wow. <laughs> tired of me watching those first 48. Because it's always on my TV, or I love that show. And I watch like true crime all day, and so all of that stuff just inspires me. And of course, it's Thursday, and um, Law and Order SVU is going to come on at eight. <laughs> Gotta watch it. You know what's going to happen? Oh my God! I've been religious about that for the twenty plus years that it's been on TV, and I'm not gonna lie. You know, Law and Order still inspires me. I just love watching that stuff, and I miss. I miss the old detectives with their really inappropriate commentary. These guys on here now are like way too nice. Yeah. And they're they're just <laughs> totally not off color and I'm a little disappointed. Yeah. Where where did you sit on that crossover where there were like those three different law and orders? I can't I can't, I can't either. I try to watch that show. I really do. But I just like I'll get fifteen minutes in and he's already getting mad like he's getting all fake. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, watch a lot. Yeah. Yeah. We'll watch we a talked lot about today. that in an episode. <laughs> yeah, so you got to make the transition from SVU to Alaska Daily because I just can't deal with that criminal and whatever criminal intent or whatever that's true. <laughs> I just can't get it. Done. But I like Law and Order. I like Law and Order, and but SVU is my go-to. It is a classic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it is. And Marissa Harte is kick ass. For the next novel, get writing. <laughs> I will. So thank you so much for, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, thank you. It's well, nice thanks, to see guys. you again in person. <laughs> yes, good. And remember, don't just keep it real. Keep it real. Keep it real. Indigenous. Indigenous. Indigenous.